For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. <clears throat> I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. In, in my home growing up, we, our board games and card games were pretty regular activity. And we loved Uno, Scrabble, uh, Phase 10. My mom hated Monopoly, so we rarely played that. <laughs> Man, all right. <laughs> um, got a few opinions here. Um, but yeah, so we, we played all sorts of games. But as I started to get older, one game kind of stood out to me as it kind of became a favorite. And that was the game Clue, right? I'm sure many of you are familiar with Clue, but some of you who aren't, I'm going to give a quick 30-second summary of the game Clue. So in this game, you're trying to solve a murder case, right? What you're doing is you take your little piece and you're rolling dice and you're kind of moving through the rooms of this, this mansion. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out who the murderer was, which is always one of you, which is kind of dark. Um, you're trying to find out what weapon they used, and then ultimately you're trying to find what room the murder took place in, because the blood isn't obvious enough. <laughs> so why am I telling you about the game Clue that probably most of you are familiar with? Well, it's not simply just to kind of figure, see where my Clue fans are, because I'm trying to come up with a game night sometime. Like, <laughs> you guys are all dead-faced anyway, so I can't tell. Um, but... The reason I bring up the game Clue is that because our passage this morning makes mention of a mystery. All right, verse 26, we see that this mystery has been hidden for ages and generations. You fast forward to verse 27, and this mystery is associated with the riches of glory. And then later on, too, in the passage, we see that this is a mystery that's been revealed to the Jews, the Jewish people, but then as Paul was continuing on his letter, he said that this mystery had also been revealed to the Gentiles, so the non-Jews. So I don't know about you, but when we have those three phrases pretty close together about this mystery, my, like, it makes me curious as to what this mystery is. You know, curious enough to kind of put on my metaf metaphorical Sherlock Holmes hat, um, enough to think about what this game is or what this mystery is. So what I want us to do this morning, I want us to play a game of Clue together not to figure out or to accuse Colonel Mustard of using the candlestick in the ballroom, it's always Colonel Mustard, but, but what I want us to do this morning is I want us to solve this mystery that was mentioned in the book of Colossians. Because this is, the text tells us that this is a mystery that all people are called to investigate. That the rewards for solving it, for finding out this mystery are priceless and actually eternal. So the way we're going to go about tackling this mystery on our game of Clue is that we're going to ask the text the five different questions. I'm sure many of you in school kind of learn the five W's. So if, if you're a note taker, I want to encourage you to mark up your detective scratch pad like this. So what you're going to do is we're going to start with the, the questions what and who, but you're actually going to pair those together. And we'll see why in a, in a, shortly. Then we're going to hit the next W. We've got the where and the when. And then we're gonna, the last W is, you know, why. And then we're going to, after we find out all five of the Ws, we're going to reflect on our findings, and we're going to think about a little bit how important this mystery is. 
So we have our work cut out for us this morning, but I think we can, we can all win this game of Clue together. So to begin, what we, ne- we need to identify what is this mystery. So as previously mentioned, our text this morning tells us that this mystery has existed for ages and generations. In fact, as you start going through scripture, as you start going through the Bible, you'll notice that this mystery dates all the way back to the first book of the Bible, that's the book of Genesis, and even to the beginning of Genesis, specifically chapter 3. So if you go back to chapter 3 of Genesis, you read about the fall of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they were the first couple, the first humans made by God. And they were given this amazing privilege to walk and to talk with God in the Garden of Eden. You know, this place of perfection, they were able to walk through it with the person that made it. But this couple, they fell because they sought to be equal with God. It wasn't enough for them just to walk and to be with God. They decided to be, they want to be equal with him. And they fell under temptation of the serpent, who we we know is not just some king cobra, even though snakes are the worst, but this serpent was Satan himself, the devil. And so this couple, they ate the fruit from the tree that God had specifically told them not to eat from. They had sinned. They had gone against God's commands. And because of their sin, their brokenness entered into the world and it corrupted everything that God had made. And so following their rebellion, you know, God actually cast them out of the garden because we have a holy God who, and they were not worthy to be in his presence to share that communion and their relationship with him because of their sin and their brokenness. But before they were finally cast out of the garden, God cursed the serpent who had tempted them And this is what God said to him. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is where our mystery originated here in Genesis 3. Because we have to ask ourselves like, and and this is actually why I I want you to put the what and the who together on our scratch notes, because the the question is not is, what is this Colossian mystery? But it's also, who is this mystery? Who is this mysterious individual that was going to someday stomp the head of Satan, who would be, his heel would be bitten? Who is this, the Savior, this, this Messiah, this Christ, who would enter into the world to save the offspring of Adam and Eve, this sinful couple? This is the major question of the Old Testament. And this theme of waiting and anticipating the Savior, this Christ, was a constant for the people of God. Who was going to come and fully restore this relationship between the people and God? Who was going to come and fix what had been broken in the garden? I think we can see this anticipation, this waiting most clearly demonstrated in Scripture in the sacrificial system. Now, for someone who's not familiar with the Bible or Christianity, the practice of sacrifices undoubtedly seems strange. I I would say, honestly, there are a lot of Christians who are kind of hazy on their knowledge as to why God required sacrifices and why the Israelites had to do it. 
Now, why were, these, why were the people of God required to bring sacrifices to God? Why did they have to bring animals to die? Even to, and when you read the first five books of the Bible, we call that the Torah. Why is so much the Torah reserved for rules and instructions about how you're supposed to kill the animals, at what time of year you're supposed to go, at what place you're supposed to go? There's all those questions that are rattling around. And I think, I know that if we answer, get some clarity on those questions, it actually will help us understand the Colossian mystery that we're talking about this morning. Now, we should note that when the Israelites brought their sacrifices to God, there were, these sacrifices would saw or serve multiple functions and multiple purposes. So the, the head of, there's a seminary that's got different locations all over it. It's Reformed Theological Seminary, the, the kind of the, I think his name's the chancellor of it, which sounds very impressive. Uh, but I, we'll go with the head of RTS. His name's Ligon Duncan. In a sermon he gave many years ago on uh, Leviticus 17, he kind of gave a few different functions of what these sacrifices served. And I thought they were really good, so I don't want to share those as well. So first purpose or function that a sacrifice had was that they reminded the Israelites of the presence of God. Now, in the history of the Israelites, if you read through the Old Testament, you, you can see that they had, they had witnessed, they had seen God do many, many great things. You know, God, he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt through, you know, these ten plagues that was, were amazing. Once they were out and they were going through the wilderness, God was led them through with a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire that was directing their path as they went about. They received manna from heaven, which has got to be the best bread of all time. There was a rock that was gushing out millions and millions of gallons of water. They were given these victories in battle that were against all human odds. You know, right? Think about the story of Gideon, how they won a huge battle against the Amalekites with 300 guys and, like, torches. They won all these amazing things. But we we'll remind ourselves that these were not constants. That in the days of David, there wasn't a pillar of fire sitting in Jerusalem. They're like, oh yeah, that's, that's, God's, that's God's pillar. The rocks in their city, as much as the people would have liked it, they weren't gushing out water. They had issues with neighboring nations all the time. They lost many battles, and there was, from my, my count, there was no situations where there was a skirmish that God sent a legion of frogs to attack, the, attack the, the enemy. In many ways, the daily lives of the Israelites felt very similar to ours in that they weren't physically seeing God, that they weren't physically seeing his presence as like a pillar of fire or the Shekinah cloud, which meant that, it's very, that it was very easy to forget or in some cases to ignore that God was doing amazing and great things. Every one of us here in this room has fallen into that trap before of, well, I don't see God, so obviously he's not at work in my life. So by offering sacrifices, the Israelites, the people of God, they were, they were able to better experience the presence of God. That by physically drawing near to the altar, they were showing that they were seeking to grow closer to God and that they were reminding themselves of all that God had done and was doing in their lives. So that every time they went to the altar, they were reminded of these things. 
A second function of sacrifices is that sacrifices were ways that God expressed their dependence on God. Now, they were in, while they were giving these sacrifices, they were asking him to continue to care for them because they would be doomed without him. It was a very practical, a very visible, tangible way of expressing that God is God and that they were not. A third function of a sacrifice is that sacrifices were confessional. Sacrifices were, or when people offered sacrifices, they knew that they were sinners, that they had rebelled against God just as Adam and Eve had, that they deserved to be punished for their sin, for their rebellion, and they were seeking forgiveness, and that's how they, they were doing that through the sacrifice. Sacrifices were acts of repentance for wrongdoing. But there's also one other aspect or function of sacrifices that I did want to highlight today because it's very important. We can't miss this one. Is that sacrifices paid the required blood price for their sins. Sin is a big deal to God. Because we serve a God who is a righteous and just judge, which means that God requires justice. And the price for sin that the Bible tells us is death. This is why sacrifices were given, because they were paying the blood price that was required for their sins. But this is a very important point, and I really don't, if you miss everything I say, don't miss this part. The blood of bulls, of doves, or lambs, they were, it was never meant or able to save the people from their sins. If we notice too, like if we notice in the, in the Old Testament that people had to regularly make sacrifices. There was never a case where it was a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Jerusalem, you know, find the best bull you can, put it on the altar, kill it, and you're good for life. It's not the case at all. The sacrifices that the people were making were anticipatory. I'm really proud of myself for saying that. In, they were anticipatory in the fact that they were pointing to something that they were pointing to an ultimate sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. This ultimate sacrifice that would fully satisfy the required payment that our sin required, or that their sin required. This ultimate sacrifice is referenced in Isaiah 53, which is a passage that I'm sure some of you are familiar with, so I want to read verses 3 through 7 this morning. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as, no, as one from whom men hide their faces as he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was crushed for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and yet he was, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As they say in the stories, the plot thickens. Who is this mystery man? Who is this man that was called a lamb that was to be t- 
took, taken as a sacrifice to be brought to the altar. We just have to wonder what was going through Isaiah's head as the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to write this. How he must have just longed to someday see that day in which these verses would be fully realized. This day wouldn't come for hundreds of years after he passed away, but it was a day that was marked by a different prophet, that was John the Baptist. Or if you prefer, we can call him John the Baby Sprinkler. <laughs> but it was, it was John. <laughs> some, some, some of you just got it. But <laughs> It, it was John, the baby sprinkler, that announced that great day when the people had been anticipating had finally come. John announced the arrival of the Christ, the Savior, as he was one day baptizing people in the Jordan River. Because on the day that Jesus of Nazareth came to the river, John shouted, I'm not going to do it for the sake of the mic, he shouted, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To put in our day's language, it's the guy. It's that guy. It's him. Well, John the baby sprinkler should be our chief investigator here because in that one statement, he has blown the whole case open. The one that the people of God had been waiting for, the one who had been promised in Genesis chapter 3, the one had been for foretold of, or referenced in Isaiah 53, the final and ultimate sacrifice, the mystery of the Colossians had come to take away the sin of the world. So now, now, so now we know, you know, now we also, so we kind of got all, John really helped us out in the case. So we have the, the who, the what, but now we also have the when. We know when this mystery happened because 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. He came to the land of Israel during the reign of the Roman Empire. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you wonder, why did Jesus come when he did? All right, why didn't Jesus come during the days of Moses or the days of David or in the 1960s or the 2000s? Like, why did Jesus come here? Galatians 4 tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, This teaches us that Jesus came at exactly the right moment in history that he had selected before time began. That Jesus came during the height of the Roman Empire. This empire that had built this incredible road system, which some parts of it still are intact today. This road system that revolutionized travel and the way that news traveled around the world so that the good news of this fulfilled mystery was able to spread to the cores of the Roman Empire and even beyond that. So let's let this be a point of encouragement for us this morning. The God of the Bible, the God of the universe, has a sovereign plan. And his plan included when the Savior, this Christ, would come a little over 2,000 years ago. This plan included when Jesus would be born when he would die, and when he would rise again from the dead. God's plan included the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire. And his plan includes us here in this moment. We are part of God's great plan. That we are not cosmic cosmic accidents or mistakes. 
that God has sovereignly placed us in this place at this time as a part of his plan. There are many things that we're going to wonder about in our lives. And there are going to be some things that we never really get a clear answer as to why they happened to us. But we can rest in the fact that God has a plan and he has a purpose, even for us. Because we don't serve a wishy-washy God, but we serve a sovereign God of the universe who is intimately involved in his creation, which is demonstrated through Christ coming to earth. God himself coming and getting involved with his creation. So we've answered the, the what and the, and the who. We also kind of talked about where this mystery took place and when it was fully realized. But we can't miss the why. Why did Jesus come? We've already seen some of the clues, but I think we just need to put them, to, let's put them all together. Again, John the Baptist really helped us out here. He said, Jesus came to take away the sin of the world. God came to die for his people, to serve as that final sacrifice, which the people had been anticipating and looking to and pointing to. Jesus came to serve as that final sacrifice so that we don't need to go to Jerusalem every year to make atonement for our sins because Jesus has paid for every single one of them. Jesus died the death of a criminal taking on the full wrath of God. He did what we could not. And this is even part of of this amazing mystery is that God himself took on the wrath of God because we couldn't. And this means that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. So that someday we can go to heaven. We can go to a city as opposed to a garden. And we can be with God for eternity. In a place with no pain, no suffering, no death. In Jesus we have this hope of eternal glory. And we can be sure of this. We can be assured of our salvation because Jesus is not rotting in some tomb. He's not like Lazarus who had kind of started to develop a little bit of a stink. Jesus is not rotting in a tomb, but he is very much alive. And he is sitting on a throne in heaven advocating and interceding on our behalf every day. Friends, today we have a special word for this Colossian mystery, and that's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus, the the best news possible. So be refreshed by it this morning. Let this marvelous mystery renew your mind and your heart. Be reminded of how bad of a sinner you are, how how much in need of deliverance you are, and yet how great a Savior Jesus is that He's not scared by our sins. A number of years ago, there's a, there a music group called Sovereign Grace. They came up with a song that I love. It's been my repeat song for this past week. It's called Grace and Peace. And I love, I want to highlight the second verse because it fits this message to a T. Grace and peace, oh, how can this be? The matchless king of all paid the blood price for me. Slaughtered lamb, what atonement you bring. The vilest sinner's heart 
can be cleansed, can be free. Oh, what an amazing mystery. What an amazing mystery that your grace has come to me. Grace has come to me, a vile sinner. It's come to you. Like, praise God for that. Friends and fellow sinners, run to Christ. Don't dilly-dally sprint. Be cleansed and be set set free from sin and from death. And if you don't know what that means, if you don't know what it means to, to run to Christ, to go to him, talk to somebody today after the service. Go to the care area in the lobby. Find a pastor. You can't miss Jerry. He's like 10 feet tall. <laughs> Find a friend and ask them, how can I receive the grace of God? How can grace come to me? No one is too far gone because God's grace is greater than all of our sins. So, is our, is our case closed? Some of you guys are like, hopefully. Um, but, but no, we, we, still, we still have a little work to do. We, we understand the who and the what and the where and the when and the why, but we still need to follow through with it, right? We're good detectives. We're not just kind of leaving it for the next guy. How does this mystery apply to our lives? What are the implications of it? Well, this passage reveals many, many, many applications, many more than we have time for this morning, but I do want you to allow me to answer two or to look at two. First, understanding the mystery of Christ means that we are to rejoice. All right, God is grace is greater than all of our sins. We've been saved from the dominion of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. We're called to rejoice in that. That's the only proper response to it. But we're also told to rejoice in something a little bit different in verse 24. And that says that we are supposed to rejoice in our... So this is what Paul said. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Paul, you know, the writer of Colossians, he was very, a man very familiar with suffering. And not in a figurative sense. He suffered greatly. Over the course of his missionary work, we've seen him be beaten many times. Seems like every city he went to got beaten. He was chased out of cities. He was slandered. He was arrested multiple times. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned. One time he was even stoned by a mob so badly that the people that were stoning him stopped and went away because they thought he was dead. But then he just got off and walked away. As he was even writing the letter to the Colossians, he was in jail. This guy suffered over and over and over again. But in his imprisonment, verse 24 tells us that he was rejoicing. How could this man rejoice, much less fake a smile? He was rejoicing because he understood that his suffering had a purpose that his suffering was advancing the church, that through his suffering, individuals, families, households, entire cities were being transformed by this gospel, by this mystery of Christ. We see this throughout the the, the epistles in the, the book of Acts, but Acts 16 really 
demonstrates this well when, again, Paul was imprisoned with his friend Silas. So they had gone to the city of Philippi, and once, when they were there, they had been preaching the good news of Christ, the good news of Jesus, and they actually cast out a demon from a, from a little slave girl. And as a result, the, the city became, got, got into an uproar, the city of leadership, and they dragged Paul and Silas to the public square. They, they slandered them, they accused them of things that had not been done, they stripped them, they beat them, and then before, all before being th- throwing them into jail. Well, if you remember, what, how did they respond? They rejoiced. They were singing. They were praying and singing hymns and praise songs to God. The prisoners, this passage tells us that the prisoners who were also with them, they were listening to what was going on. And after God sent this miraculous earthquake, which opened up the shackles and opened up the cell doors, and this encounter that the, Paul and Silas had with this jailer, this jailer and his whole f- household all became Christians. They were baptized that evening. So through Paul and Silas's imprisonment, God brought others to himself. Very rarely do we rejoice in, our, in the midst of trials and sufferings. Yet Colossians 1 and 2 and other passages like it, they teach us that our sufferings can actually build up and edify the church. Think about through church history. Think about how many people's faiths have been strengthened by stories of people like, like Jim Elliot and Corey Tenboom or Job. Individuals who suffered greatly. And yet their stories have impacted thousands of lives. That's a reason to rejoice. Friends, God is at work in our lives, even in moments of suffering. Don't allow hardships in life to push you away from God, but use them as opportunities to lean into him, to put your trust in him, to stand firm in him, because God is faithful And he's working all things together for his good, for his people. And that means he's even using our hardships for good. And sometimes he's he's even bringing about change, complete transformation in somebody, in the lives of others as a result of our suffering. Christianity is the only religion in the world that has this view of suffering that's not doesn't necessarily mean you're being evil or doing something bad, but God is using the brokenness in the world to bring about reconciliation to him. We have one more final major application this morning before we'll conclude, and that is we are called to steward the mystery of Christ well. Now, I didn't mention this earlier, but in the world of the Colossians, when they would hear the word mystery or the mysterion in the Greek, they would instantly think of secret religions. In those days, and especially in that part of the world, there was this huge movement of secret kind of mystery religions. And in these cult groups, what people would do, they would go through initiations in order to get through to the inner circle. And once, they were in, once you were inside those circles, that's when you kind of were given or granted this, the special, special secret knowledge. 
That stands in stark contrast to what Paul was talking about. The mystery of Christ that we've been talking about this morning wasn't restricted to a certain number of people inside a circle or a certain people group. But it was and it has been, to, been revealed to all peoples, to all nations, all tribes. So we are not called to keep this mystery close to our chest. But we are called to share this mystery with all people. We are called to proclaim it. To make the word known. To warn and to teach with wisdom the whole counsel of God to encourage others with this good news, this message of salvation and hope. So as we think about going out this week, let's make a conscious effort to just be intentional not to be secret keepers. But let's be intentional in showing our cards. Let's be intentional in revealing to others the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in winsome and Christ-like ways. Let's help others mature in their walk with God. To put it another way, let's be willing to struggle for others. Paul, in the, in, in the letter we're reading, he mentioned the struggles that he had for the Colossians, for the people in Laodicea. Um, some, of the, some people he'd write to, had never, he'd never seen face to face. And yet, he was struggling for them so that they could be encouraged, so that their hearts would be knit together in love, so that they could fully understand the mystery of Christ, the mystery of God, and they could be assured of it. He struggled so that they, could be, they would not be deluded with plausible arguments. He struggled, he strove, he fought so that they could stand firm in Christ. When was the last time you or I struggled like that? We struggle and we strive for many things in this life, but when it comes to this category, we don't tend to struggle. This week, let's struggle. Let's fight, let's strive. Not for personal acknowledgement, or accomplishment, but let's struggle for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his people. If you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, then you possess the answer to the Colossian mystery, the mystery of the salvation through Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, we can answer the meaning of life question when somebody asks it. We don't have to fear the afterlife because our assurance comes through the finished work of Jesus, the ultimate and final sacrifice. Even going back to our clue analogy, we, have the car, we know the answer inside the yellow envelope. So this week, let the truth of the gospel not be a secret that's stored up in the recesses of our mind but may it shine brightly through our words and our deeds. And may we rejoice when we have the opportunity to struggle 
for Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for revealing the mystery of salvation to us, not because we're worthy or deserving of it, but because you are worthy and you have paid the ultimate blood price for us. I ask that you help us to rejoice this week, help us to recognize that you are at work even in the midst of our sufferings, and help us to praise you through those things. And also we ask that you help us to struggle because there is work to be done in your kingdom. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.